Okay, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Psalm 20. Psalm 20 this morning. We'll read the whole psalm and we'll be focusing on a verse here in a moment. But it, let's read. It says, Hear ye, the Lord hear thee in the... I get my mind on focus on these things this morning here. The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend thee. Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Remember all thy, offering, remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice, Selah. Grant thee according to thine own heart and fulfill all thy counsel. We will rejoice in thy salvation and in the name of our God will we set up our banners the Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. Save, Lord, let the king hear us. When we call, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we have again to gather ourselves this morning. Do you pray that you would help us to have our hearts and minds focused on you and thy word? May we set aside the cares and the distractions of this world that so easily draw us away from hearing what you have for us this morning. And may our minds be focused on thee and thee alone. We pray that we are open and yielded vessels for the Holy Spirit now to take your word and to apply it and use it in our hearts and lives as you deem best and fit. For us as believers who are gathered here to conform us into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For that lost one that may be here, may they be convicted of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come, that they too may come to know Christ as their Savior before they leave this place this day. Do that work of grace in each of our hearts that only you can do. And may we go forth truly rejoicing that it's been good to have been in thy house this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we look this morning, the question that we have kind of as our title is, where is your trust? I want us to look back in time for a moment and uh, read something here. There she is, standing tall in the bright sunlight her great shadow threatening to make even the most confident Edwardian feel insignificant. But those gazing up at the billowing smokestacks nearly ten stories overhead know that they live in a time of immense achievement and innovation. The times demand confidence, a confidence so bold as to declare the largest man-made seagoing object unsinkable. Her size outside equals her magnificence inside. The grand staircase. Rooms wrapped in mahogany paneling. Etched patterned mirrors. Elegant leather covered chairs. Shimmering crystal on pure white linens. And mills fit for the king himself. You have waited months in anticipation. And finally the day has come. You are about to set sail on the Titanic. She was the largest and most luxurious ship afloat. She was 882 and a half feet from stem to stern. To help keep size in perspective, I mean, this was huge for back then. That's been 110 years 
since that fateful day in, in April. But to keep that size in perspective, the battleship Missouri in World War II was 888 feet long. Not much longer. To come forward, our current aircraft carriers are 1,092 feet long. So just over 200 feet more than what we had 110 years ago as the largest ship. The Queen Mary II of the Carnival Cruise Line is 1,131 feet long. When you figure when the Titanic was christened at the beginning of the 20th century there in 1912, you go back 50 years from that and you had wooden ships just getting into steel ships that were powered by sail or paddle wheel that were far smaller in size. So it must have been something to behold there in the docks in England uh, back then. Something that we may take for granted if you've ever been by the ocean, if you've ever been near a naval base uh, on any of the oceans and seen an aircraft carry. I mean, it's huge. But uh, I've seen that back then. must have been something else. There was a lot of trust put in that Titanic. She was deemed unsinkable because it was thought impossible that four of the 16 watertight bulkheads could be damaged. Little did they realize that it would sink with far less damage. Because of poor steel quality, the Titanic sank when by all means she should have stayed afloat. Over 2,000 passengers put their trust in the Titanic. Only 705 survived through the ordeal. Quite a shock back then. Of course, making headlines, as, as we all know from our history books. I don't think there's anybody here that recounts it uh, by being alive in 1912. But I ask us that question because that was what was put forth. It's unsinkable. We have achieved this might, this greatness as, yes, Englishmen, but as the world. I mean, the whole world was enthralled with this ship. And it's unsinkable. There's, there's, it's a mechanical marvel, an engineering feat. And yet on its maiden voyage, it doesn't make it across the Atlantic. It's there in, what, 16,000 feet of water, resting, broken into a relic of man's greatness in man, instead of their trust in God. So I ask us this morning, where is our trust? The psalmist David notes in verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Some will trust in the physical, natural, much as many of those did back then, thinking that this ship was unsinkable, not that we shouldn't trust ourselves getting into a ship. Um, obviously, Darlene did. She trusted the ship, survived for the week, came back. Uh, it didn't sink uh, somewhere along the coast of Alaska. We've put our trust in a lot of things that we've had made by man. 
But uh, too often times, that's only where we put our trust. And, and our trust far beyond just taking a cruise up the waterway and back and, or an airplane across the ocean or across the waves and come back. But where is truly our trust when we think of the real things that matter? Too often times it is in the physical, the natural, and it is to our own destruction. God is not worshipped with man-made things. And too often times our focus turns to that. And we think we're worshipping God when we're not. The psalmist in Psalm 115 notes, says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? And yet people have. Where is your God, believer? We can't see him. You can't touch him. You can't talk with him like I do with a friend. Something that believers have been accused of for millennium, haven't they? Where's your God? Where is he? You can't touch him. You can't see him. But our God, the psalmist answers, but our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. He turns the tables. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. The psalmist in several places will repeat those similar words. Those idols, they're nothing. They're just something that is... Man-made. They may shape them and make them look like an individual of some sort, but there's no voice that comes out of that mouth. They can't hear you. It's just a piece of wood, a piece of metal, a piece of rock. God is not worshipped in his creation, as we see in Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. A great indictment against mankind, chapter 1 of Romans. Paul lays down a clear defense of the lostness of men. And he notes here, says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." What is he getting at? He's reminding us that the things that we see are made by things that we cannot see. That it is God. They didn't just happen. They didn't evolve. There was a greater power at work. And it is God who created what we see. And truly, I find it amazing that anyone would think that somehow it all evolved somehow. That through a bunch of random chances, it happened. Uh, we were chuckling 
I don't remember who it was here a while back about learning about various things to eat. You know, how, how did you know that you don't eat rhubarb leaves, but you eat the stalk? Who was the first one to try that? And then really, who was the second one who knew the first one who would want to try that? And again, I don't remember who it was that we were talking about. We were running our minds along those lines. It's like, and all these other things that, I don't know that I'd want to try a second time. Well, he tried that, so I'll try that. I don't know that I want to try that. I saw the effect that he had on that, so... And then we put that into the realm of, of just everything about us. And it's like, and this all happened because of these random accidents? And it's like, ah, oh, my faith doesn't reach that far. That's, that's uh, I just can't, I can't fathom that. I can't see that happening. My faith is in a God who spoke it into existence, and it was there. Formed it with his hands as we have that anthropomorphism, because God is spirit. He doesn't have a body as we think of, but we speak of him in those terms, that he formed the earth, he formed man out of the dust of the ground. That, to me, is far easier to believe, if you will, because one, we have it recorded for us in this book before us, his his revelation of himself to us. But man is confronted with these things and noted that they are without excuse. The evolutionists will stand before God and be without excuse. But I've learned that it's this way, and God will say, no. I created it. And I gave you this creation as a testimony to my creative powers. And you've rejected it, as we will continue reading here. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God unto an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And he will continue the downward spiral of humanity. But he reminds us here that they have defied and glorified not God who is God, why is that? It's really a simple answer. If I turn the truth away from there, that there is a creation by a creator, then I am no longer answerable to that creator. If I acknowledge that there is a creator, there is some supreme being who created all this, then I am by all means and all accounts accountable to the Creator. And if I'm accountable to Him, 
then I've got to obey him. Because he obviously is the superior and I'm the inferior. And that strikes at the heart of our humanity, our fallen nature. And so man through the centuries, the millenniums, have sought to go against the one true God to their own destruction. As we see throughout the scriptures, as we read of that history, we find men that were wanting to trust in themselves, making the reality of God into something else, will deify man, will deify the creation. And so we have, you know, people around the world worshiping rocks, worshiping trees, worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars, fish, animals. Instead of worshiping the Creator, who is blessed forevermore. When men have been confronted with this, too oftentimes they still refuse. When we turn to the book of Revelation, as we come to those end days that I believe, are, I know, are far nearer to us now than they were when this book was written. But as we see those events unfold during that tribulation time, as God's wrath is poured out upon this world in a way that is made to get their attention. When we read of the judgments, we see them to be very unnatural events, though they are natural events. To the point that it is, I believe, God's way of saying, I want your attention. Do I have it, humanity? But we find in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, it says, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand. John, in his writing, and God showing him this window into the future, as men are going through these great judgments, they're acknowledging it. This is the wrath of the Lamb. And instead of calling on him in repentance, what are they saying? Bury us alive in these mountains. I don't want to face him. And yet we know as the end of the story, they will. If they die in that cave, in just a few short years, they're going to be resurrected and will stand before the great white throne judgment to meet that God they don't want to meet. A little bit later in chapter 9, he states, And the rest of the men, which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, 
nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. It's interesting. Stop to think about that for a moment. This is still something future. And what does John just record for us? That people possibly in the 21st century are worshiping idols of silver and gold and brass and stone and of wood? Does it mean that they're putting up these idols? Could be. You can go to India, you can go to any Hindu country and find all sorts, hundreds, thousands, millions of idols made out of various things because they worship a multitude of gods. How many persons worship a vehicle or a boat, a camper, a dream home, their own children, grandchildren? They they don't fall down and worship, but who has the honor and the glory? It's not God. God will judge. These things that are man-made or that are God-made that we seek to make as God, God says don't trust in those things. That's not where the trust is. Far better to trust in God. God will take care of his own. What a joy to read through the scriptures. I mean, we have this book. Again, God's revelation of himself to us. What he wants us to know. Are we reading it? To know what he wants us to know. So that we can live accordingly. Because when we do read it, we find that God takes care of his own. What a great lesson it is to read in the Old Testament. We find Exodus chapter 14, verses 23 through 25. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And it came to pass that in the morning watch the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels, that they drave them heavily, so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. I'm always amazed with that story. One, I know, yes, because of the hardness of their hearts, they followed the Israelites down into the seabed of the Red Sea. I would find myself having hesitated at that water's edge. Do I really want to go down there after them? Who did this for them? Because obviously some greater power has provided this means of their transportation across the Red Sea in a rather miraculous way parting that water, drying out the seabed, and allowing them to walk across. Do I really want to go after a people that something has provided this for them? Because as easily as it can be 
taken apart, it can be brought back together again. But the Egyptians do. And then God starts to cause them problems. Their wheels of their chariots come off. It starts to get hard. And they realize it's too late. And it is for them. Why? Because God was taking care of his people. We read there in the prior chapters and we find that as God gives the plagues against the Egyptians, for a while everybody is involved in them. And then pretty soon there is a distinction made between Israel, the land of Goshen, and the rest of Egypt. Wouldn't you think that would be getting the attention of the Egyptians? Nothing's happening over there, but we sure are having problems. The night of utter darkness, darkness that could be felt. There's lights over there in Israel's homes. We have none. The firstborn dying, theirs aren't. And they finally got the message, leave us, please. Go, here, here. Here's, here's some jewelry. Take it, go. I, I, we want you out of here. But then to have followed them, God's taking care of his people. Over and over and over again. We find later on in 2 Kings chapter 19, many centuries down the road, they're in the promised land. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Here they are concerned that the Assyrians are going to take over the land of Judah. They're camped. There's this huge, massive army. And God in essence is saying, just wait. Just wait. This is my battle, not yours. And an angel of the Lord takes care of 185,000 soldiers. Can't snap that well with that hand. And they wake up and there's no battle. Because God has taken care of it. That's our God. God provides for his own. Psalm 37 verse 25 says, I have been young and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. How many examples could we give as testimonies of how God has met and taken care of our needs? I mean, let alone what we see in the scriptures through the children of Israel, yes. Through the believers on into the New Testament. And in our own lives. One of the great biographies to read to understand some of this is George Mueller. And his care of the orphans in England. Never letting a man know the needs of the orphanage and having all those needs met because he prayed 
to God. And trusted that God would provide. And God did. Over and over and over. Why? Because God will provide for his own. He will not be a debtor to us. He loves us. God will always be there for his own. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, as the writer of Hebrews notes, which he's referring back to the Old Testament, where it notes it as well, he says, Let your conversation be without covetousness. Let your manner of living be without covetousness. Envy. Longing for something that somebody else has. Covetousness is sin. And be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. As he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. He is with us. He's not forsaken us. He takes care of his own. He always has, and he always will. That is why we can put our trust in him. Because he doesn't fail. Again, back to our verse. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord, our God. May that be our heart's cry this morning. The world is looking in everywhere it can to try to get something. To find some sense, some sensibility, some stability out of the chaos, out of the problems that are around. We have the answer for them. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. May we point them to that. Don't trust in chariots. Don't trust in horses. Trust in God. He's come to us through his son Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. Died as our substitute. Bearing our sins in his own body on the tree. Believe that he died in your place. Trust him. He's not going to fail you. And again, we who know Christ, I trust, can stop and consider our own lives. And see how, yes, God has provided. He's been there for me. He's brought us through the good times. He was there in what we might call the bad times. He was there in our midst. He was watching over us, comforting us, giving us his peace, his strength, his grace. He's always been there for us. Why? Because he said he would be. He's not going to go back on his promises. Ever. And we can trust him for that. May we trust him fully. Doesn't mean that he's going to provide us again with a flowery bed of ease. Because he's not. But he will be with us through all that comes our way. May we simply trust. Because our lives are far better when we do. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time and thy word this morning. 
We thank you for the psalm of David as he reminds us of where our trust should be. It should not be in chariots and horses. It should not be in the arm of the flesh, for it will fail us. You do not. May our trust be fully committed to thee. You're our God. You're our salvation that you provided through Jesus Christ. And Father, we placed our faith and trust for, yes, our salvation there, but Father, I trust that we have learned to place our whole lives in your hands. You are guiding and directing. Your plan is unfolding. And truly, we can trust you to see it unfold. Help us to trust. It doesn't mean that our trust, our faith won't waver at times. But Father, when it does, may we turn to Thee. May we not look to the, again, the arm of the flesh, look to the world, look to the creation. But may we look to the Creator. For you it is that will give strength. You it is that will provide. So may we simply trust. And Father, joy and rejoice of how you take care of us. Do that work now. Father, if someone's faith has been faltering, may you encourage that heart this morning that they can continue trusting you. It doesn't mean that we'll know clearly the way forward. Father, you'll give us enough light from thy word to take the next step. Thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May we hide it deep in our hearts and then follow that path that you've laid before us. Do that work now, I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.